0: Oh, thanks, Samachita. Um, yeah, Samachita said, w- w- one of the ways I sort of pay my rent is I work not for the communications office, but the liaison office. Uh, communications office used to deal with like the, the press and so on. The liaison office, as Samachita says, mainly talks to other Buddhists. Uh, I, I, I am the liaison office. By the way, it's not there's, there's some big staff somewhere. There's me in my bedroom. Um, also, get some interfaith dialogue that I'm involved in. I remember uh, last year we were invited to the the General Synod of the Church of England, so I went along along with a number of other sort of Christian denominations and quite a sprinkling of Muslims actually, and. Uh, the, the, the Church of England, very, very sophisticated, impressive organisation, explaining to a number of people who were coming across it pretty much for the first time, it's not that, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm that familiar with the Church of England myself, but um, they had this very sort of uh, elegant little PowerPoint presentation about how the Church of England was organised, and people started asking them questions about some of the fine points of the that the organisation, and at one point one of the bishops says, well actually frankly it's still a work in progress, we're still figuring this out, and basically since the 1500s they've been tweaking their organisational structure, and I thought if the Church of England haven't completely nailed it down my now, we've been at it quite a bit less long, so this is work in progress. It is me still trying to kind of <coughs> uh, think a little bit about some of the main strands of the FWBO. And actually one of the things, one of the points I'm going to make is the, almost the central conceptual idea in Buddhism is that things change. And part of the problem trying to understand the FWBO is that it's a moving target. Every time you look, uh, something has shifted. Anyway, let me say a little bit. So Samachita asked me to, uh, looking at her email, to get some of my reflections on what the FWBO is and what makes us distinct. So I'll try and say a little bit about that, although I'm not sure that's quite uh, what I'm going to end up talking about. When I was writing the talk, actually, um, for some reason, uh, the Bob Dylan song, A Hard Rain Is Gonna Fall, came to mind. This was today when I was thinking about the talk and realised the thing about hard rain is going to fall probably number of us are old enough to remember this but um Uh, It was written around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, each verse is a song that Dylan thought he wasn't going to have time to finish Uh, so in a sense every verse points to a song that you think he thought he didn't have time to write out in its fullness and I was thinking one of the reasons it came to mind I think is that uh, there's so much to say about this that I think I'm going to touch on a number of different topics and actually a lot of them deserve talks on their own so I hope that I, I don't sort of stray too far down some of these paths or it could be quite a long talk. But I'll try and give you a little bit of a a quick run through the verses, and at least go to give you the, some of the what I think are some quite sort of spiritually significant themes about the F.W.B.O. Um, <coughs> since we're on the Church of England, I've been reading a, a book recently by uh, what's his name? Is it Richard Holloway? Is it? The, it, it was the. Uh, Anglican Bishop of Edinburgh, and his cathedral was just next door to my sister's flat. But that's just by the way. Um, but uh, uh, reading, it's uh, a very interesting writer, Holloway. He's definitely on that kind of deconstructive end of the, the Anglican Church. And uh, he's written some very, very interesting stuff around ethics, for example. But uh, he's written a book about spirituality after religion. And he quoted a Russian poet uh, called Rozanov, who I'd never heard of, but the, the, the verse that he quoted, which I thought was very interesting, coming from a, 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 an Anglican bishop, the little couplet that he quoted was that all religions will pass, but this will remain, he says, simply sitting in a chair and looking into the distance. The, the book actually is called "Looking into the Distance," and the, the, the point that Holloway was trying to make is, is that every uh, systemata- systematization of spiritual teaching uh, has its its job to do, but actually, what it's pointing to is something much more fundamental, much more human if you like. So the image that Rosanoff used is that religions past, but you're still going to have somebody sitting there and looking into the distance trying to see clearly. Uh, I, I really like that image actually. That I think that the whole of the Dharma, the whole of the, the teaching of the Buddha I think is, is quite aware of itself like that that what it's trying to address is not its own organisational clarity if you like it's trying to point to something much more fundamental and much more human Uh, one of the lines of the Buddha that I came across, maybe the shortest definition, the, the shortest explanation that the Buddha gave of what he thought he was trying to do he said, there's one thing that I teach, there's suffering and the end of suffering And I think that it doesn't get much more fundamental than that, that the the whole of the Dharma is trying to point out. I think this idea that it's the Dharma and not Buddhism, Buddhism in a sense is a a bit of a a Western translation. The Dharma is something much more fundamental. The Dharma is trying to look at the nature of things and trying to give us a way of supporting our awareness so we're seeing more clearly Uh, more in line with the nature of things, living more in line with the nature of things. So this description that what the Dharma is trying to address is everything that frustrates our experience of not being fully alive and given us the supports that we need, the structures that we need that allow us to, to live deeply, to live fully, to see Clearly, you're immediately into sort of language that is going to resonate for some people but doesn't quite hit the mark for everybody. But there's something in the depths of anybody who finds their way through the door of a Buddhist centre that's trying to be. Address that's trying to be answered and that I think is what the Dharma is, is trying to do another teacher I think uh, said that the methods of Buddhism basically are the methods of life so what it's trying to address is something much much more fundamental than a, just a sort of a, a sectarian definition of Buddhism far less than the friends of the western Buddhist order and before I talk about the FWBO I want in a way just to evoke that context and what we're trying to do is to find ways of practicing in the, the lives that we live in, the city that we live in, the culture that we live in, that supports that process of, well that the language of Buddhism is, is the, the process of bodhi, the process of awakening, of just sort of waking up to a real nature of our lives. So that's the the context, and I'm, I'm interested in this for thinking for a number of reasons. I'm interested in it urgently uh, because it matters personally. I think it matters to anybody who's got a spiritual practice. But speaking a wee bit more professionally to begin with, as uh, Sam Chitter was saying, I've got some responsibility for our ordination process, and it definitely changes the way you think about the. the the, the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order the Order itself uh, as a whole one of the reasons is just trying to think what is it that I'm ordaining people into, what's the nature of our practice community see my friend down here who's lived at the Women's Ordination Centre for years nodding but uh, I think just when you have that kind of responsibility it makes you think a wee bit more broadly than just (coughs) your own personal practice, so apparently I'm interested in what it is that's really characterizes the Dharma and how we practice the Dharma in this day and age uh, because I'm involved in preparing people for ordination and really what ordination is, is just committing yourself seriously to to practice that that process that supports uh, or to those practices that support that process of awakening. So from that point of view, I'm interested. I'm also interested, as I say, because I work for the liaison office. And one of the the very, very interesting things about liaison office is that you do talk to other people who are trying to practice the Dharma in the West. And it's a fantastic way of... Uh, learning how other people, what other people have found works, what other people have found effective, the mistakes that they've made, the things that we have in common, the differences. It's a very, very interesting, very kind of privileged uh, bit of work. It's not always completely easy, actually. My like, uh, 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 experience a lot of the time is you get a lot of Buddhists together and you've got this instinctive goodwill. There's something that you just simply recognise. And still, you start until you start to have doctrinal discussions. Then it's like watching people trying to build the Tower of Babel. It's just this incredible capacity for uh, confusion and difference. But if you sit quietly for a minute, you start to get back to the common ground. So, very, very interesting process. Uh, it really is a work in progress. I think that, that not just for the, the Western Buddhist order, but for the whole Buddhist tradition coming to the, the, the West. A couple of people I know quite well, for example, I know uh, uh, a bhikkhu in the Theravadan tradition who's starting to do serious training, has uh, trained fairly seriously with the Zogchen teachers from the Tibetan tradition, and he's finding parallels between Theravadan Vipassana practice and Tibetan Zogchen practice that those two traditions would not previously have been aware of, really, because they grew up in such uh, geographically isolated Related ways, a, a, a Tibetan teacher I know well has been asked by his teachers to start to study the Pali canon, which is not something that his tradition would traditionally have done. So, so you're watching this whole process of different Buddhist traditions coming to the West, encountering each other, encountering Western culture, and trying to think: how do you? practice effectively, how do you support this process of awakening in conditions very very different from the ones that each of those traditions grew up in cultures very differently from the ones that each of those traditions grew up in I have to say I'm reminded of that famous Cho and Lai joke Uh, Cho and Lai was asked about the French Revolution, he was asked whether he thought the French Revolution had been a good thing or a bad thing and his answer was it was too early to say uh, This is somebody, I think, speaking in the early 70s. Um, And I have to say, I think it's a bit like that with Western Buddhism. I think you're watching something still taking its shape, still finding its expression in Western culture. There are certain fundamentals, I think, that are already clear, but a lot of the detail of it, quite what the whole thing is going to look like in a couple of hundred years I think is anybody's guess. Um, But uh, as I say there's a sort of deeper reason I think why I did want to talk about what's distinctive about this particular practice tradition in a sense that just comes back to that whole thing of what it is that we're trying to address in our own experience again using the Buddha's language of suffering and the end of suffering. I think that end of suffering part of it's quite an important bit of the mix actually Buddhism still I think sometimes it's hard to talk about suffering uh, without everybody going oh god here we go again Dukkha and uh, I think sometimes Pali uh, modes of expression don't help you know that they're not talking about uh, what well, some of the later traditions see if I can sort of find this actually talks about um Samut uh, Pada conditionality is absolute unboundedness And that's the later tradition speaking, the the Pali doesn't tend to use quite that level of uh, exuberance in its language. So to talk about suffering, you've already got a negative, and then the end of suffering, it's the end of a negative. And you've really got to get that if you look in detail at what the Buddha is talking about, it's this... Waking up into awareness and joy, uh, which I say you don't perhaps always get from the language. So there's that fundamental question of what supports that move and, well, in a way I guess that is the question. How do you practice? How do you structure your practice? What supports that process? And the whole of the Dharma, I think, is, is the attempt, or well, starting with the Buddha, to communicate that experience of waking up and trying to find ways of supporting that process in us. So in a sense, I think what I'm, I, 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 m- my main line of interest in the FWBO is what supports that level of change rather than what makes us distinct. I think there are things that make us distinct and some of those things are important. But in a sense we've got a lot that we share with the whole Buddhist tradition and in a lot of ways, what we share is more important and more fundamental than what makes us distinct. Having said that, I think what makes us distinct is important. There's a text that we've been looking at recently, a text that uh, subhuti one of our order members, uh, has been studying, uh, called the Chetokila Sutta. And uh, in this text, the Buddha is basically saying there are five things that you need to support this process of change. And without these five things, he says, uh, change isn't possible. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. And the five things are uh, confidence in the teacher, confidence in the Dharma, and confidence in the Sangha. So, so far, so good. If you know anything about Buddhism, we're on pretty solid ground. It's Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. But then... An interesting shift in the text. The Buddha then goes on to say, you also need confidence in the sasana, which gets translated as the training. And confidence in your companions and the spiritual life. And the point that Subiti makes about this, and what it seems the Buddha getting at, is that you've got these fundamental principles. You've got, you know, like the Dharma says, things are impermanent. But for that to make a real impact on our experience, it has to get translated into a structure of practice. Uh, So you don't just deal with the Dharma in the abstract. You deal with certain ways of thinking about the Dharma and certain practices that support a shift in our own awareness. So this shift from uh, the Dharma as the second thing to the the training, the sasana as the the fourth thing is this shift from the kind of the universal down to the specific practices that we share with each other and then the the, the fifth one is not just the sangha in the the abstract but the the our companions in the spiritual life the real people that we have relationship with and I, I think the sort of point that i'd like to take from this is is the the that the the universals have to get grounded in real, specific, lived experiences. They get supported by the practices that you do. They get supported by the communication that we have with other people who are practising. And uh, a a very interesting discussion that we had recently at European Buddhist Union meeting. It was a hell of a meeting, actually, but again, that's by the way. Um, But one of the interesting discussions was... uh, by a, a Tibetan, introduced by a Tibetan teacher around this idea of Samaya. And Samaya gets translated sometimes as bond. But she was saying basically what it is that uh, the Tibetan tradition is talking about is Samaya, is the, the commitment that you make to a definite community of people and a definite framework of practice. And that that specific structure is the thing that really supports the, the change. There can be goodwill across the boundaries. But the fact of the matter is you're not going to get somebody from the Nichiren tradition chanting Nam Yoho Renge kyo in the same room as somebody whose main practice is sitting quietly. the, the, the fact that their practices are different means that you've got to draw a boundary for either of the practices to work. You know, without going into better or worse. Just there are different ways of supporting that shift. And that the practice that you share is one of the main sort of media that you have one of the main ways of communicating and supporting the shift that you're trying to make in your own level of awareness so i think there are things to say about what it is that we share also things to say about what it is that makes our own particular practice community distinct so i want to say something about uh, about that and there's a few ways that I, uh, you could have gone into this i think it's a very in- and interesting talk to give just a bit the name of of this particular community. I think you could have quite an interesting discussion about friends, about Western, about Buddhist, and about order. I think you could say something quite substantial about each of those. But actually, what came to mind was a a little question-answer session that I was involved in recently with Sangharakshita, where he talks about the FWBO in terms of four lineages. And what lineages means, I think, uh, uh, again, coming back to this thing, the whole Buddhist tradition is the Buddha, It starts with the Buddha trying to communicate his experience and to find ways of supporting that in us. What lineage is, is the specific way that a particular community tries to pass on and support that experience in people who are training within it, who are practising within it. And Sangharaksha recently talked about the as having four lineages, and they are the lineages of teaching, lineage of practice, lineage of inspiration, and then he paused for a minute and uh, he said you could talk about a fourth lineage, which is the lineage of responsibility. I want to say something about each of those. So first of all, the lineage of teaching. And again, we're on pretty fundamental ground here. You know, I live round in Chantry Road, a couple of streets away with Saramati and Sagramati, who are academics, who have done an academic study of Buddhism. One of the, the real fringe benefits of living there is sitting at breakfast or sitting at lunch and listening to, I was going to say... Uh, either of them sounding off It's really only Sagramati that sounds off Saramati is far more considered But you get a lot of Dharma Just crosses the table uh, Over dinner And there's not a lot I, I, mean, I, I realise, I, I've been practising Buddhism for 35 years And listening to those guys I'm still uh, Ongoingly Humiliated about how little I actually Know about the tradition um, But There's a lot you could say about the teaching, a lot you could say about the FWBO teaching, but at the risk of having people better informed than I am contradict me. I think if you were to go for one central teaching in Buddhism... Uh, It would be the teaching of uh, the the earliest formulation of it, the earliest description of it, which gets variously translated, but uh, I think it gets translated as conditionality, conditioned co-production. But the idea that things arise in dependence on other things. A nice little quote that comes from... uh, Sariputra, one of the Buddha's main disciples having his first contact with Ashvajit who was one of the first people the Buddha taught and Sariputra asks Ashvajit to explain the teaching and Ashvajit says of all those things that arise from a cause the Buddha has explained the cause and how they cease to be that too he has explained and at that point Sariputra attains stream entry uh, and decides the practice. So that is probably one of the, the the most succinct descriptions of the the central Buddhist teaching. If, you, if somebody doesn't agree with that, you can discuss it next week. Let's, let's just take that as given uh, this week. And it's one of these ideas. Like, when I first came across that, I thought, "Is that it?" <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret of the universe. And I have to say, it, it, it struck me, you know, after 30 years of having that and coming back to it and thinking, why is that so central? And I think one of the, the really, uh, again, slightly humbling things and beautiful things about Buddhist practice is that the doorway into them is absolutely simple. And they just keep revealing another level of depth, and another level of depth, and another level of depth. It's true of the practices, it's true of some of the central ideas. And this idea, uh, the whole Buddhist tradition on the whole would agree that this idea that things arise in dependence on conditions and they pass is is a central idea. Um, And... I guess I first came across it not quite in the raw form, but uh, in a form that actually. That has, has used, where he talks about mind-reactive and creative. I think I hadn't realised how traditionally rooted uh, mind-reactive and creative uh, was. But what, what, what Sangharaksha is saying, again, this is going, I guess, for not only is it the central teaching in the Buddhist tradition, I guess it's the central teaching in the FWBO for the same reason that it's so central in, in the Buddhist tradition. But Bhante says, basically, you've got this process of unfolding, this process of change, this process of becoming, not just going on out there in the world, but going on in our own minds. And then he goes on to say that uh, you've got two options, and the two options he talks about is in terms of reactive and creative, that basically you could talk about it more traditionally, uh, in terms of you can move towards confusion, or you can move towards awareness. And in any moment, you've almost got those two choices. You can move into something Confused, self referential, you can move into something aware, but starting to kind of open out our attention and our, our connection. And the whole tradition basically states and restates that basic idea. So, for example, in the the Tibetan Kaju tradition, Gampopa, in the introduction to to his sort of manual of practice in the Kaju tradition, talks about Sangsara and Nirvana. And he says, this is the nature of Sangsara, this is the nature of Nirvana. Sangsara, he says, its fundamental nature is conditionality. Uh, it's characterised by confusion and its outcome is suffering and nirvana he says is characterised by conditionality it's characterised by the disappearance of illusion and its outcome is the liberation from suffering and if, I just think it's the most practical descriptions I've ever come across of Sangsara and Nirvana. So they're not things out there. But basically what Sangsara is, is the mind operating out of bewilderment, is one of the translations. And as we operate out of bewilderment, it causes us pain. We misunderstand the world, we misunderstand ourselves, we miscommunicate with other people. And to the extent that we're misunderstanding our own fundamental nature, our own fundamental relationship to that extent it's painful. And what nirvana is, I think this is a a a very, very exciting idea. It's not a fixed state. It's it's a tendency within the mind of the mind moving from confusion to awareness, from awareness to deeper awareness, from being trapped in craving into contentment and from contentment into to love if you like. Basically, nirvana is is that tendency in the mind starting to become more and more the shaping tendency. And basically, it's back to this simple thing. If you look at your mind, you're watching, you you get this uh, metaphor in so many of the traditions of just you're looking at a stream, you're looking at a flow. And in any moment of that flow, you can choose the shape that it takes and that actually the conditions that you need to move from confusion to clarity are simple. You already know how to do that. And all practice is, is is gradually shifting the habit of moving into confusion into the the tendency more and more established into just paying attention and not, not defending, not blocking off, just letting the mind connect, engage, open up. So fundamentally, reactive and creative are in terms of Gampopa, Sangsara, and Nirvana. You're looking at those two tendencies in the mind and that possibility. So, the lineage of teaching, if you really had to go for the essential, that's the teaching. That there are those two possibilities in this fundamentally unrestricted flow of experience. So, that's the teaching. How do you do that? You already know all that you need to know about Buddhism. If you know that, it's just going to take you, probably, the next ten years, twenty years, thirty years to completely get what that's pointing at. Actually, maybe forty years when I look at more in practice. (laughs) So that raises the question, brings us on to the second point, which is the lineage of practice. I want to say something about that. One of the great metaphors in Buddhism is what it calls, I think, the eighty four thousand Dharma doors. Right? And it's basically saying in almost any moment of experience the possibility for liberation is there. And Buddhism has this incredible capacity to come up with practices that support that process. You, know, you you'll get you know, you, you can you can pick your favourites basically, but I don't know if you get anything very much different from, I've got a friend who practices in the, the Nichiren tradition which is a fascination for me, you know, the whole practice, literally the whole practice is chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and I'm looking at this guy and it works, I can see change in, in something I can see his understanding of what that's pointing to deepen. I, I know somebody from the Rinzai Zen tradition, you know, and it is... He gave us the answer to some of the koans on a car ride through Italy. He says, well, you don't practice in the Zen tradition, I can tell you. So he was given up and been writing down the answer to koan. So if you want to know the sound of one hand clapping or whether or not the goose is out of the bottle, see me later. <laughs> um, but I, I suppose the, the point that I'm making is just this. There, there's not an orthodox teaching in Buddhism. There's this incredible creativity about how you support that move towards waking up. Um, But you can get hell of a confused if you've got 84,000 practice options facing you. So actually, practically, you have to choose. I remember Banti saying uh, recently after reading a book by a woman called Deepa Uh, who says that basically pick a single practice and stick with it and he was saying that's good advice so forget the other 83,999, pick the practice that has the most impact and stick with it. Actually I'm going to be a little more flexible than that, there's a framework of practice within the FWBO uh, that gets a fair bit of emphasis, it's it's the basic framework of practice, I want to say just something briefly about that. The briefest description of it that I've come across was um, what Bante called the five great stages of the spiritual life the spiritual path. And he said, basically, this is what spiritual practice looks like. He says, every day you've got five things to practice. Keep up the effort to be aware. Stay in as positive a mental state as you possibly can. Don't lose sight of what's fundamentally important to you try to apply at every level uh, what you've realised at at your highest level and do what you can to help other people. And then he says, basically, that's spiritual practice. Uh, if, If you're doing those things on the practical side, he said, that's all you really need. So I'll just give you them again because that's quite an important teaching. If you want a spiritual practice that covers all the bases, Keep up the effort to be aware. Stay in a positive mental state. Keep connected with what's fundamentally important to you. Apply that at every level of your experience uh, and do what you can to help other people. That's what spiritual practice fundamentally is or at least that's our particular structuring of spiritual practice. Uh, Each of those, I don't want to identify, the reason I I gave that list list first is I think when we talk about practice, it's too tempting to talk about meditation practice. I think actually spiritual practice is broader than that. In in a sense, it's the the whole thing about staying aware. The, The practice that you do, the formal sitting practice, is an indispensable support for that. But fundamentally it's something you can do at any moment, just y- you gradually you, you learn how to be a bit more attentive to your experience and it's something that has the spill out of the structured practice for it to be transformative. So each of these things has a meditation practice that supports it and um, it's, it's not the only practice that supports it but I think there are some key practices. So for the move into awareness you've got a very simple practice of mindfulness of breathing uh, for the move into to more positive uh, emotional states you've got metabhavana for the move into uh, not losing sight of of what's fundamentally important this is the whole it's a little more specialist, maybe, but into the whole area of what the Buddhist tradition talks about as insight practice. And the key practice that we do there is a practice called the Six Element Practice. And basically, the Six Element Practice, what you're doing is you're starting to look in your own direct experience at this process of impermanence. You're just you're looking at, at the element of earth, and you're just recognizing that every day you're eating, you're defecating. You're just part of a process of a flow of elements. It's the same with what you drink and what you pee. It's the same with the air that you breathe and that you breathe out. It's starting to notice. It's not, a. I think one of the important things is that it's not a theoretical argument. It's not Buddhism trying to persuade you that everything's impermanent. It's just saying, look at every aspect of your experience and just watch what it is that's happening in that. So gradually it's that you're learning to, to look at these fundamental characteristics of the nature of things if you like. And then this idea of applying at every level what you've learned at the highest level that the main image that supports that is visualisation of, of uh, the, 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 the Buddha and Bodhisattva figures. And that it's basically it's a metaphorical approach to the whole thing and After ordination, one of the main practices that most people will take is the visualisation of a Buddha. And you get some very, very beautiful uh, images, for example. There's a a figure called Vajrasattva uh, who represents this fundamental purity of the mind. And rather than coming at it conceptually, what you visualise is this pure white figure above you. You visualise white, light white liquid coming from that figure gradually filling you and purifying you and then at the end you're just asked to reflect that you've never been impure there's never been anything fundamentally that needed to be purified so again not coming at it conceptually but just literally you're watching the whole of your body fill with this white light and the metaphor has quite a strong uh, experience, uh, quite a strong impact on experience. In itself, it's not enough, right? Like I, I think one of the the implications of this whole thing is: what does that look like in action? You know, if if you come out of uh, a meditation that in a way that beautiful, and then immediately into uh, an irritated mental state. I've literally done that. I remember sitting in a shrine room having this blissed out meditation, opening my eyes, watching the guy who was leading the meditation walk across the shrine room and just thinking what a ridiculous way he walked. And I immediately <coughs> irritated that he should be walking the way he was walking across. And I'd, I'd been completely blissed out just moments before. So a lot of the practice is what's happening in the sitting practice, and what what does that look like in terms of your relationship with somebody else. So you're looking at this sort of process of of transformation. And then this other area of doing what you can to help people. I'm going to come back to that later. I think that's a little bit different. But the point that I wanted to get across here was there is a whole framework of practice. There's a number of possible frameworks of practice and there's Variation uh, within that framework, but there are certain key practices that support these key experiences of, of the mind becoming a bit more aware, the emotions becoming a little bit less tight and self referential. Uh, identification with a tight area of experience becoming a little bit softer and a little bit more inclusive and practices that support that it's not a mystery Uh, uh, american psychologist william james said what you give attention to becomes real Uh, and you start taking energy and effort into don't even want to make too much stuff about the effort, but you know you're just sitting here right now and just notice what your body's doing. What do you feel like? You're excited. You're interested. you bored, bored. Uh, is it cold? Is it hot? You're know, just any moment that you're in, you've got the possibility of being a little bit more awake within it, and there are practices that support that. So there's a framework of practice. And I wanted to make just one other point about practice. One of the things that is distinct about the FWBO is an emphasis on what's called going for refuge. And the the, the basic point I want to make is even more fundamental than that structure of practice, is the choice to make the shift. You've got a habit of... We've all got a habit of confusion. There's an easy, accessible possibility of waking up. And what going for refuge is, basically, is the decision to move from confusion to waking up, and for that to be sustained as a choice that we make within our experience. So basically, going for refuge, even the practice, doesn't help unless we engage with the practice. So what going for refuge is, is just that decision for the mind to move from confusion to attention, or from craving to contentment, or from aversion to, to, to love. It's, it's a, I don't want to get too kind of mystical, but it's just literally, fundamentally starting to learn that the experience of being awake and open is a a much more deeply satisfying way of being alive than being confused and defended. And it's your mind starting to learn the taste of each of those experiences and just basically saying which one do you prefer? What's the choice that you're going to make within your experience? Um, There's a, a definite emphasis in the FWB on going for refuge. I suppose just one other point I wanted to make about it is... I think something that is very distinctive about the FWBO is this idea that you can practice regardless of your circumstances. That, you know, you start where you start, basically. So for some people, you know, like when I got involved in Buddhist practice, I was in my early twenties, I didn't have a job, I didn't have a family, it was easy to get involved in a very kind of full lifestyle. Uh, For other people, they've got vocational work or they've got families that they're responsible for. And the 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 fundamental idea is that any situation that you're in has that possibility for a a shift in the quality of your awareness. I remember when I was in the States this year, speaking to a friend of mine who's got a couple of young kids. And he was talking about taking his eight-year-old boy rock climbing. And the the kid was completely roped up. He was in a harness. They had you know, done whatever it is you've got to hammer into the rock. So there was no risk of the boy falling, or not falling, so in a way that he was going to hurt himself. But he fell, and wasn't aware of what ropes do, and what the, what are they called? The big bits of metal you hammer in anyway, what, what they do. So he's hanging there, and he's going, Dad, is this okay? And listening to this guy talking about his dialogue with his kid, and he's saying... So what's going on right now? So what does it feel like? What's it like to be this scared? And just, you know, very kind of reassuring, very supportive, but very inquiring, just getting the kid to think, I'm scared, I'm nervous. So is the rope holding you? Yeah, it's holding you. So is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. Just really get a sense of coaxing this eight-year-old into a kind of bigger attention than he would have had Uh before I suppose you 're sort of thinking this this kind of support of of waking up the support towards awareness isn 't limited to you know, the what happens in the shrine room, so any situation that you 're in, this possibility to go for refuge to move towards the mind being more awake is is there, and I think that is something quite distinctive about the fwbo 's Attempt to say, oh, what does practice look like in in the West? It doesn't. Well, a really obvious difference is it doesn't have to be monastic practice. On the other hand, it doesn't rule out monastic practice. Just it's basically saying that possibility is there, whatever circumstance. So that's the the first two lineages of teaching and of practice. The other two I want to deal with kind of more briefly. But the the third one's uh, the lineage of inspiration. And the basic point there is you learn from other people. i like picking up this thing about going for refuge. One of Sangharaksha's little aphorisms is that going for refuge is caught, not taught. So it's not something that you're going to get conceptually. Uh, it's like basically it's the experience of what you learn when you're around somebody who's a bit more awake than we are. Uh, I, I was thinking like an, an example is I, I'd read about meditation before I... I came along to a meditation class. And when I turned up at a class and listened to somebody explain it, and actually watched them having fun explaining it. The whole thing just seemed a whole lot less uptight and tight-ass than it was when I read about it. And it's almost like you don't get the full human implications of some of these teachings until you you see them being explained by somebody who's practising them. So, there's something that gets communicated about the deeper meaning of the teaching that comes through your relationships with other people who practice. So, a very strong emphasis in the FWBO is connection with people who are practicing. It's one of the strongest things that supports our own practice, I think. And it's not even that people are always giving you teaching. Like, I'm thinking, I, I, I live for a while with, with somebody who I've got a very high regard for. And uh, just watching, first of all, watching the seriousness of his own practice—you know th- how r- r- regular he was in meditation—had a big effect on my meditation. But especially watching how able he was when he was in dialogue with somebody to really move out of his own biases, to get a sense of what was important for somebody else and to respond to that in a helpful way. It's almost like, you know, you can read about compassion, but watching somebody that able to take another person in just gave me a sort of level of understanding of what was being got at by the more abstract teaching so the third lineage the third thing that communicates that experience is being around other people who practice and the fourth one just to finish this off is the lineage of responsibility I was glad Banti mentioned this personally um, there's a few of us who you know, like somebody was asking me earlier what it is I do and the short answer is email right, uh, I spend a lot of my time in dialogue with people across the world basically uh, uh, through the medium of email, what did people do mm-hmm. before email started anyway? But the, the, one, one of the, the points, uh, and, and qu- quite a kind of significant point, I think, is something that Chogyam Trungpa, Tibetan teacher, talks about is spiritual materialism. And one of the points here is that um, one way of thinking about spiritual practice is that we are too identified with our own concerns. It's emotionally true and emotionally we feel it as craving or aversion. You've got these emotional boundaries and you've got it more kind of cognitively, like where your attention can go has quite tight boundaries around it usually. It's one of the revelations of something like doing the mindfulness of breathing and you you start to find out what your breath is like, you start to find out what your feelings are like and you're moving out into a level of aliveness about your own experience that we don't have a lot of the time. So so one of the the basic tendencies of spiritual practice is away from a very tight self-referential focus into something much more inclusive, much more attentive, much more permeable. One of the problems is you can start to get self-referential about your own practice. And basically what we're back to here is this idea of one of the important things in spiritual practice is help other people. Uh, And just do what you can to consciously make sure that your attention is including other people as well as ourselves. And there's a number of ways that you can think about this. A lot of the very, very simple thing in the Mahayana traditions is at the end of every period of practice you dedicate merits so just may the merit gained in my acting this go to the alleviation of the suffering of all beings so there's always a kind of move out into including other people but one of the really pragmatic ways like well another one something i found very very helpful is a set of uh, verses called the mind training verses where you're just given one of the the slogans is train with slogans right uh, we've got habits to break we've got a habit of not being aware so how do you start to work with that and we've got a habit of being self-referential so one of the things that these little verses try and do is to give you a couple of tools that point you to key elements in your experience and one of the mind training verses is may i cherish all beings and wish for them the highest good so it's as simple as that, but just like something every now and again to remember when you're talking to somebody and you notice that most of your awareness is on this end of the exchange. Just a reminder that your awareness could be a little bit broader and that you could be as attentive to that person as our habit tends to because of ourselves can go the other way actually you get some people who are so uh, attentive to other people you get no idea what's happening at your end and in that case uh, make sure that you're included but basically it's it's just a reminder to not create a self-referential relationship to your own practice or in Nagarjuna's words the medicine becomes the poison it just becomes something else that gives you a slightly subtler sense of your own self-importance. So one of the things about responsibility is just saying you've got your own practice. How does your practice spill over into helping other people? I don't even want to make it as dramatic as that. It might be as simple as you see somebody, you know, in the shop who's in a hurry. You let them go ahead of you. You know, just you're alive enough. I had a humiliating example the other day I was on a bus in London and and a real rite of passage for me for the first time ever Uh, a young girl got up to give me a seat and I honestly thought she was getting off the bus so I would never have dreamed of taking the seat otherwise but she, she got up, I sat down and she stood there so my last clinging to a sense of myself as a young man has gone it was an insight practice. But anyway, the point I was going to make, it was only when I was getting off the bus that I realised there was a pregnant woman standing behind me. And I didn't need the seat, and she did. But my awareness was narrowly enough focused for me. Not only had I been humiliated by this young girl getting off, this poor bloody pregnant woman standing behind me while I'm sitting on the seat. <laughs> um so, I think there was a point I was trying to make with this, not just <laughs> getting it off my chest. Um, j- just this idea that in very, very simple ways you can respond. What was it somebody said? Love is the idea that other people are real. Uh, just starting to respond in a way that's genuinely aware, responsive to other people. But it can go deep. Uh, there's a fantastic image from from one of the, the later Indian texts. Uh, and it, it's because Sagramati's is not here. I can mention the Bodhisattva ideal, um, but it, it's an image of, of the the practitioner as the well, the, the Buddha actually is the first chick hatched from a a, a set of eggs, and it, it's saying that what this elder chick has done is peck its way through the shell and it's out of the shell I don't know if this is biologically true or not but the image is that the the first chick out starts to peck on the shell of the, ch- the chicks that haven't hatched yet so you've got the chick on the inside pecking to get out of the shell and the chick on the outside pecking the same spot to break the shell open and fundamentally what you've got here is this idea that this process in your own mind of moving from trapped to liberated is something that's going on in every mind and that we benefit from the, the moves that other people make. We, they peck on our shell and that our effort to move into that open, aware state of mind actually can be passed on. We can communicate that in a way that supports the same process. And somebody else so there's things distinct about the FWBO but I think those lineages maybe give you some sense of, of at least some of the elements that are spiritually significant some of them are distinct some of them we share but the fundamental thing goes back to that human process of moving from suffering to liberation from suffering